You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. Your host, Trent Fleskins, here with you as always. It is June. What a great time of year. We are post-COVID. We're looking forward to some great opportunities both in our lifestyles but also in the market with this Saturday morning being the first day we get back to normal. How will that affect our property choices and buying choices? We all look forward to seeing the data coming on that. This week, however, I thought I would catch up again on the massive list of questions that we get sent in every week. We have 60 questions uh, and we won't be able to get through them all today. We've got about 15 minutes max, obviously, with this segment. But I'll get through some of the more juicy ones, some, some of the ones that I think represent a lot of people's questions out there. So hang tight. Question time now. We'll get straight into it. First question is from Anthony. Question is, my property is near the Thornley train station. Which strategy is better, doing a double story or a single story on the subdivided block? Thanks for the question, Ant. Mate, it's all about demographics. It's all about understanding what the socioeconomic situation in that area can afford to pay for. If you're going to build a double-story house and that's what your family will uh, enjoy most and it's about the lifestyle and not the money, then go for it, mate. Uh, However, if it's more about uh, making money and it's that investment situation, understand that an area like Thornley where the median house price is in the mid to low 300s, going and building a property that's probably going to cost about you know $300,000 at least to build on some land worth a good couple hundred thousand dollars, you really start to cap yourself at the top of the market there and you're in overcapitalization territory. You'd be one of the most expensive properties in Thornley, uh, which makes it hard to be able to have people justify paying that amount of money when they could go to Canning Vale, for example, a bit of a nicer suburb for that sort of price. So my suggestion would be if it's for investment purposes, don't overcapitalize, stick to single story, meet your market. If your block's too small, well, you might have the wrong block in the first place. Thanks, mate. Next question is from Lydia. Lydia asks, is it better to subdivide and build prior to selling or just selling the land itself? Great question, Lydia. Let me explain it this way. If you've got a block of land that you know will be worth $180,000 and it will cost $220,000 to build turnkey on that block, you obviously want to be able to make sure that the market will at least pay for that 3 by 2 on 300 square meters Uh, $400,000 or more. If the market's not demonstrating an ability to do that and it's not going to be able to meet that opportunity cost for you of at least $400,000, let's say that the market's paying $360,000 for that product, then you're going to go and build a property on that land for the sake of it and you'll lose $40,000 doing it. So just because your building doesn't mean it's automatically going to add that value back with you. So really, the, the answer is very specific to your situation, your block size, your suburb, what the financials are in those areas. It's about doing pre-feasibilities on that. And before you uh, make a decision on that investment, asking the question just because you could doesn't mean you should. Uh, how will that line up with your situation? Thanks a lot for your question, Lydia. Hope that helps. Next question is from Glenn. Glenn asks, what are the tax implications, i.e. GST on purchases and sales on property, capital gains tax, land tax, things like that for a, for a development? Glenn, great question. I like to run on this rule of thumb. If you're subdividing and selling land, you are paying uh, full, full capital gains tax. You're a developer. You won't get any capital gains tax discount. If you are building and selling straight away, again, the ATO sees you as a developer and you will not get a capital gains tax discount. If, however, you are building and then renting it out, 
the ATO views you a little differently. They view you as an investor, which is most of what most of us would be on a general basis. And when you're an investor and you own property in your individual name, you can then get your capital gains tax discount after owning that property for a year of 50%. So if you make a profit of $100,000, the ATO says you need to pay tax on $50,000. And if you make $150,000 a year as a salary, that means they will count that as you making $200,000 a year as a salary. Obviously, that extra $50,000 goes on top and you'll pay tax on $200,000 that year. Uh, land tax is applicable regardless of whatever you do. Every time you own land, not dwellings themselves, but land, each time you add more land to your portfolio in your name, that will increase uh, your uh, land value holdings and you will pay a marginal tax, sort of like income tax on that land every single year. It actually gets quite expensive. Next question is from Kay. Kay asks, what is a scheme 21, for example, on a property? What does it mean? What's its purpose? Kay, I'm not exactly sure what scheme scheme 21 might you might be referring to, but it would be the specific local housing scheme, the local housing policy, the town planning policy, for example, that your local council has formulated a number of year, years ago that relate to how your property and the property properties around you can be subdivided, can be zoned. So they specifically denominate the zoning of your property. Now that zoning called the R codes, that is the Bible for how densely your property can be developed. For example, if you have a property that's 900 square meters or more and it's R20, you might be able to put two lots on that property. If you have a property that's 900 square meters and it's R40, uh, you might be able to put four properties on that one existing property. It's all about uh, the ratio of the R codes to how big your block is, your local housing scheme, your town planning scheme for your local council will, will denominate for each house in that council what their zoning is. Okay, next question comes from Ellie. Ellie asks, how can I find out if my local council or local government will be changing zoning for my property anytime soon? Awesome question, Ellie. Ellie, the answer to that is you need to research your town planning scheme. You could even call the council, ask the planning officers and ask them if there is a draft planning scheme currently available for your location. That will mean that in the works right now is a, a new plan for new zoning to change the zoning for your property or possibly your property uh, and that will obviously affect the density that can be built on the uh, that property and the properties around you as well as the values uh, given the opportunity for development that may change. So interestingly, there are always councils around Perth. City of Canning just enacted theirs last week. City of Coburn's got one going right now as well. Subiaco is obviously deliberating theirs. They have been for a few years. Netherlands just changed theirs last July. That are always looking to change and upgrade their zoning based on the density requirements and the lifestyle requirements of the suburbs in their council. So first port of call, call your council, ask if there's anything happening at the moment. Next question comes from Edison. Thanks for the question, mate. The question is, is it wise to buy a property based on the local future planning schemes of local governments? Great segue, really. Thanks for the questions together, guys. Great question in that, Edison, it really depends on your investment horizon. If you are looking to make money quickly, if you're looking to develop quickly, then obviously that future planning scheme isn't of any use to you. It may take 
one year. It may take 10 years for that planning scheme to actually be enacted. It may never be enacted if it doesn't get through uh, council and the state government. So yes, you can buy a property based on the future planning schemes and there may be some uplift, some early bird profit you can make from that if you're looking to have a medium to long-term proposition. However, if you're looking to buy a property to develop straight away, there is no way around you getting, for example, a triplex built on a property that's R20 and 700 square meters just won't happen, right? So the only time that you could do that is if that is only increased to R40, for example. So in that situation, I would suggest if it is a case where you're looking to get moving sometime soon, it will be a case that you will be looking for property with existing zoning allowing for development if that's what you choose to do. Okay, a question from, looks like an alias, name is Dunebug. Question is, pros and cons of doing it yourself, guess property investment and property development, uh, or going through a company that does it day in, day out. Dunebug, cheers for the question, mate. Uh, Nice little self-serving question for us here at Strategic. I would suggest that obviously there is a lot of value in going through the right experts with the right qualifications, experience and license. And you should really be looking to qualify that before you do engage any property advisor, property consultant in that space. A consultant worth their salt is not selling you anything. They're not selling house and land packages. They're not selling things over in the East Coast. They're not giving you free seminars and trying to sell you properties that you've in places you've never heard of the right type of consultants the right type of companies are selling their time they're providing consulting advising advisory services either as buyers agents as brokers for mortgages they're assisting you with project management of subdivision or their surveyors uh, settlement agents these are the professionals in the property game that you want to be able to trust Uh, they need to show track record uh, and they need to be able to demonstrate their their pricing and where they're making their money so Junebug, i would suggest that as long as those consultants can demonstrate how they're going to essentially pay for themselves with the either time efficiency or cost efficiency or risk mitigation of their services as long as you can do that then sure i would suggest that you should spend your time being an expert at what you do and pay the experts to do uh, what they do in the spaces where you are looking to invest your money. Next question comes from Mr. T. Graydon. The question is, I am looking to make my first purchase in the next 12 months. I'm in a stable job, earning $100,000 a year. I'm looking to invest in an area with decent yield, good long-term growth. Can you suggest an area for me? Mr. Graydon, I would suggest that uh, it really depends on for starters on uh, for you if you're going to be looking to purchase yourself you need to understand the areas that you're going in to invest in so the easiest place to do would start where around where you live if you're making 100 grand a year uh, you've got a good enough savings amount then really uh, most of the properties in Perth in a re- realistic price point would be open to you up, you know up to a million dollars really if you've got the equity for it or the savings for it it really just comes down to what your again investment horizon looks like if it's as i said a long-term decent yield you're looking for then it would be about focusing on these four factors one how close with your money can you get to water that's the river or the ocean two can you get into some good state schools uh, zones like the ross moyne or willerton or mount lawley or churchland senior high schools three how close can you get to the city and four How close can you get to some of the nicer shopping centers around town? These are the four factors that affect value in Perth over and above the zoning of that property and the development potential of that property. If you're just looking for a long-term passive yield, I would suggest that you look for properties in that space. That would be where I would stick to. Okay, and last question comes from Ashik. Ashik, thanks for the question, mate. 
The question is, how much minimum cash do I need to do a property development in a good area? I would start with firstly the understanding of what it takes to buy a house for the, in the first place. Let's say a $500,000 property at 20%, it would obviously cost $100,000 as your 20% deposit. The stamp duty on top of that would be $20,000. And as a rough guide for a risk mitigated triplex, holding costs might be an extra $25,000. On top of that, subdivision costs might be an extra $50,000 to $60,000. So over the course of a standard property development like a triplex in a medium priced area, you're most likely going to need at least $200,000 over the course of that development. If you don't have that money, I would start with at least identifying that property that can make you money and locking that down and then saving up over time as you can afford getting that development done. As long as you've purchased a property at the right price where you can demonstrate that profit's there, it's sitting there for you to, to realize when you can afford it. Guys, thanks a lot for your time on those questions today. Any more questions, send them straight through to inquiries at theperthpropertyshow.com.au. Okay, suburb spotlight time now. We are talking about one of Perth's biggest suburbs, just off the Midland train line, big changes going on in that space, especially around the activity center of the train station. Lots to talk about. One man I want to talk to is Steve Lay from Lay2 Real Estate. Steve, thanks for coming in, mate. Yeah, thanks, Trent. Thanks for having us. When I think about that train station, I think about turning around and seeing your office right there on the corner of, of King William. Yeah, what I see the most is uh, the, the bridge renowned for the trucks hitting it. Don't we love that website? For everyone listening today, if you haven't, look up the... I think it's an actual website, isn't it, where it's a day counter of how many days it's been since a truck has got stuck under that bridge. Under the Bayswater Bridge, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Are we going to have that problem in the future? Apparently not. They're saying that they're raising the, the next new bridge or the two bridges by another metre or so. Quite possibly some bigger trucks will try to get under there and who knows the fate of those trucks at any point in the future. Who knows? Steve, can we get a bit of history of Bayswater? What was it like maybe before, you know, maybe even 100 years ago? What was Bayswater to the city of Perth as, a, as I guess, what did it represent? Who was living there and what were the block sizes? What was the lifestyle? Oh, my goodness. Uh, a very swampy area. I think by about 1930, there was only around 400 homes in the suburb. Very much a farming-style district in the early days, mainly you know, around the Bayswater train station. That's where most of the older homes were built. A lot of farmhouses out around there that made up the uh, the bigger lots. Timber homes, fibre homes? Uh, I believe oh, it's probably a 50-50 split. A lot of little workers' cottages. I mean, a lot of people worked on the railway lines and into the 40s and 50s, there was a lot of people working out at the Midland Rail Shops. Bayswater was sort of picking up in those days after Second World War. Uh, Riverside precinct of Bayswater, there's a lot of fibro homes being built and, yeah, returned servicemen coming back and, and building their homes. Bedford had the same thing as well. It's an undulating suburb, isn't it? It's pretty hard to find a flat block in Bayswater. You've got a lot of hills and streets. It all seems to culminate down on, on the train station at the lowest point. Yeah, there's a, there is a lot of hills, uh, as evidenced by the amount of people that don't want to put things in letterboxes in the area because they get tired walking up and down the hills. <laughs> there are a few flat parts of Bayswater, but I know the uh, with the local newspaper, quite often you don't get it for months on end because they don't have walkers. Not a lot of water in that bay, is there? What's the background? Is it is it named after a man? Look, I don't know exactly, but it could be after somewhere in England. But the actual area had a lot of swamps. So you could think that bay's water, lots of swampy areas that they've filled in since. All filled and, in, yeah. yeah. Well, and the ethnicity, do we have a real high percentage of ethnicity yeah i think there were a lot of well not a lot but there were certainly market gardens throughout the suburb over the years uh, around the swampy areas i think there is look there's a mix of people over the, you know the polish the italians there's all sorts of different 
ethnicities through the area. But is that a good thing about Bayswater these days? It's, it is a bit of a melting pot of, of both location-wise and also demographics economically. Just going back to when I first came to Bayswater as a real estate agent in 1992, started in the industry, the area was just full of older people. It was It was a very much a large-style country town. It was very... Did it need no, younger just, people to come in? No, no. Well, of course, that's just a natural a natural progression, I suppose. But those people had had their families and kids and grown up and moved on, and some of them had stayed in the suburb. Uh, it's just it's just that natural progression. But I remember distinctly the, the, mate, like the, the hotel, the bowling club, very, very active. A lot of people, a lot of men, a lot of women, and the stories of the suburb you know, going back 10, 20, 30 years. A lot of shenanigans going on in the suburb. Even when I was growing up as a kid going to high school, uh, the the stories of the Bayswater boys, how rough it was out in, in Bayswater. They're yeah. quite hard nut sort of young young men out there and the footy teams and, yeah. Well, you think about how it's progressed to these days. It's now at the centre of what will be one of Perth's biggest infrastructure booms we've had in, in years. When you think about Bayswater train station, it's an old derelict place right now. Even King William, you'd have to agree, it needs some love. But what, when you get that, that new train station in and the spur line to it, the airport, the Midland line and the Ellenbrook line, isn't this just ready to be one of Perth's busiest activity centres? I think the investment they're putting into it will certainly be, you know, create jobs from a government point of view. There are a bit of a, there is a bit of a divide in the in the community over whether they should have it or not. But you know, progress is progress. It's going to happen, whether you like it or not. I think it'll look it'll look pretty cool at the end from the the graphics that they're putting out. It looks like a great piece of architecture. You do know? you think it will spur on a cafe strip like what Maylands has been trying to do for decades? I think there's uh, a few more hills to climb before that happens uh, economically. Like the local, and the local ownership there? Yeah, I think, look, there's a lot of debate about the village you know, area, the older buildings, either side of the train line. Oh, there's going to be a progression. There'll be five, six, who knows, ten-storey buildings, whatever they end up building. There will be commercial. It's not going to happen overnight. For me, it's probably a medium to long-term play. As long as you're near the train station, within walking distance, you'll be right. When I think about Bayswater, the one thing that I think is quite interesting, unique about it is not only does it a number of suburbs, a number of suburbs, it goes across two sides of a train line. It has a massive commercial space in the middle of it. Again, it has its own train, it probably goes across a couple of train stations, really. Yeah, it has the river frontage as well. It's so big. How do you cover and explain one suburb when you've got Maylands Bayswater, Ashfield Bayswater, Morley Bayswater, Bassendine Bayswater... It just doesn't stop. Another thing about Bayswater is because it was such a spread out suburb, it took a long time to actually fill it in. So you do have this real eclectic mix of, you know, older sort of style homes, which people really crave, but they're not always available as a very low supply. And then they, the infill, as it happened, you know, through the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you can see you can see the pockets of land that were developed like you talk about the back of uh, Riverside Precinct on the, the north side of, or the east side of the Tonkin Highway. There's, uh, you know, some modern sort of stuff in there. Do you think there's an argument that Bayswater could be split up and, and swallowed up by Bassendine and Ashfield and Morley? It's an in, I mean, Bayswater, in, from when I think about Bayswater, really that's the area around King William, uh, the soccer club, and Garrett Road, right? 
but then you've just you know you've got these little pockets as I'm trying to uh, allude to here that for me don't really reflect what it means to be in Bayswater around that precinct. Well, yeah, that's that's a point of view. I sort of think that that's Bayswater though. Yeah. Is the different the eclectic mix of and locations in Bayswater? Some people love to be down near the dog park at Riverside Gardens. Other people want to be west of the train line uh, towards Beaufort Street for that access. Uh, you've got other people that can't afford to be in the the centre of Bayswater that will trade off and go to the Embleton side or the Morley side, the Ashfield side. There's preferences, but it gets back to dollars and cents. You're still part of Bayswater. Yeah, what I'd like to see is some of the commercial area redeveloped. Allow family. A, yeah. Well, it's a bit of a stain on that area, isn't it? Because location-wise, it sits between the Galleria. It's got a great offshoot to Tonkin Highway. It sits next to the uh, train station. It seems like that commercial space there is a bit of a. It's a bit of a frustrating spot around Clavering Street and foil and those sort of streets there there is that side there's also the other side off guildford road uh, that sides onto uh ashfield yeah uh, down to the river there's yeah, that block true. that block down there i just think there's an opportunity as in a lot of i mean you don't see it so much in perth maybe the inner city where some of the commercial areas were overtaken by residential if you travel overseas you'll see it everywhere it's in main cities where the commercial areas have been revamped into residential or a mix yeah. of resident shops and, and warehouse sort of styles. Cool yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a big there's a big opportunity for that land to be rezoned because it won't always be commercial or you know, warehouse style. Yeah. I think it just gives it's just a blank canvas. Is it? And that's the cool thing about Bayswater. Steve, let's talk about uh, who your buyers and sellers are right now. If you could characterize them. Years ago, they were you know, older people moving out who, you know, when you had conversations with them, said they'd never move. They'd be going out in a pine box, but they'd ring you 15 years later and stay in contact with them and they'd want to sell. And it was a plum one-owner home. Now, the, the area is full of, you know, it's been bought up by different people over the years. There's not very many original owners left. What do the buyers look like? The buyers at the moment, once again, an eclectic area that is mixed with different styles of homes, size blocks, uh, architectural design, location. I put out a video to to my database and had people come back during the COVID uh, period just to check and see who actually wanted to buy in that period, regardless of what was happening. And it was quite amazing, the response and it came back with people between 400,000 right through to 1.4 million that were wanting to buy. They just couldn't find any stock on the market. Currently, there's very little stock on the market. Tell me about that relationship right now. Again, you've just referenced COVID. Is it a case where, whilst there's a bit of fear in the news, especially representative by the more broader Australian story on the East Coast, what I'm hearing from most of the agents at the moment is, mate, you'd never know there was a virus. It's 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 pretty nuts on a Saturday at the moment. Are you seeing the same thing given how low your stock levels are? If you've got the stock, you'll get people inquiring. If your price is right, they'll sell. The dynamics haven't changed. It's just the volumes that have changed. The, there's buyers everywhere. They're still keen to buy. Uh, when I say they're keen to buy, they're still a little bit, little bit sort of fed by the media in terms of wanting to chop people off at the knees. But the idea of an agent is to be able to negotiate those people back to bring a bit of reality. Yep. Yeah, bring them together, back to a bit of reality. There's plenty of sales evidence to prove that the market hasn't collapsed, uh, contrary to what some people think. The weekends, if you've got home opens, are generally well attended. 
when it comes to price points, can you give us an idea of how cheap it can get in Bayswater? I mean, I'm assuming it's a one by one on King William or something. And then this, mm. the the price points along that curve all the way up to the most expensive thing you've seen sold recently? Yeah, one by one. Uh, we just sold one recently, a villa. that went for 153000 So cheap, isn't it? Well, compared to what they got up to. And compared to the rent you'd pay to just to live there. Uh, yeah. There's not, a, there's not a huge amount of stock out there in the, the 200s. Even the 300s is a little bit light on. So there's a bit of a gap there. Is, and Th- and you couldn't even sell a new... A new apartment for that, it'd be in the 400s, wouldn't it? Once again, there's really no, there's very little new apartments in Bayswater. There yeah. are, have been a few. Uh, when I say a few, really minimal amounts. And that's where I think, you know, the next bastion is. They're, they're pushing through Maylands up the... Yep, the Finbar stuff on the highway, yeah, yeah. on the railway. Yep. One on Kennedy on one, well, one on Kennedy and the Unison. There's been a couple of uh, smaller developments in Bayswater they were pulling, you know, high threes mm. at one stage, even in the low fours for a two by two. Yep. Those days are gone. Some of the projects that smaller developers have been trying to get up that are four, three, four stories, the valuers are, are hurting them. Okay. So you, you, what you're telling me is that yeah, there's probably a gap between what's available at that really cheap King, King William price and then I guess the four or five hundreds where you're starting to get you know, your, I guess your Bassendine, back of Bayswater sort of family homes? Once again, block size, you know, land, land size, land value, location. Really. You can't get past the land value. Sometimes those homes are land value plus 10% for what's on it, depending on the renovations. You know, some of them are land value plus 100% because of what's on it. Nicely renovated, you know, three bed, two bath, even though it's small, maybe 90 to 100 square metres all done inside and outside, maybe a small pool, mid-sixes. Yeah. What would you say is the, I guess, the most represented property in Bayswater that you would see, that cookie cutter that you would sell the most? I would say that 60% of Bayswater from memory would be the original old fibro tile properties. You know, and they were on the 600 to 700 square metre blocks and a lot of those have been subdivided. They've got the R25 zoning. Some of them have laneways. A lot of those have been chopped up. There are opportunities occasionally that come up you know, with subdivision potential. Well, let, before we segue into that, give us an idea of what the most expensive property out there at the moment would, would look like or has been sold for. 1.45 million. There was one down on the river that sold just recently. Architect designed sort of two or three level overlooking the water on a very small 345, I think it was, square metre block. Okay, so it's probably that river precinct that really is the only area that might command prices with seven figures. There's homes in the Bayswater precincts that are 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 million. Owners have come in, knocked down a, a home on a full block and spent six hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars building a brand new home. Mm. They've built them for a purpose to live in with their families. They're not for sale. That's a good thing, though, that there's still some good quality going through the area because you need to have those sort of houses to keep a level of prestige in the suburb, especially when rezonings and things like that start to come through. You don't want it to all just be medium to high density builds at some point in the future. There needs to be variety. Yeah, there is. And I think, look, there's been a number of properties, you know, between 1 and 1.3 that have sold in the area. You're probably getting two, three, four a year across the board on average. But there are homes in there, as I say, that are well and truly, you know, worth that sort of money. They're just not for sale yet. Yeah. Well, I think the good thing about Bayswater is that it's a a suburb that's pretty much accessible to every price point. Absolutely. Every man 
in Western Australia, every, every type of man, the every man, Bayswater has something for them. Absolutely. That's what I love about it. It's a, it's a real mix. There's about, I think last count, there was around 25, 20, 25 to 27% of the area was actually uh, rental properties. The rest of them are based, you know, a good three quarters of it is owner-occupied. Yeah, fantastic. And that's what you want to see. And that's yeah. a big indicator as to whether a suburb will grow in value at some time in the future because obviously people are looking to hold on to their properties, keep supply low. Let's segue into that subdivision space. We've got a few split zones in the city of Bayswater, uh, but in specifically in the suburb of Bayswater. Steve, what are we talking about mainly when it comes to the zoning and how does that relate to the block size of original blocks? R17.5 slash 25 uh, along the main roads, 17.5 slash 30. There's R25 is uh, predominantly west of the railway line. There's smattering of R40. But recently, uh, with the Meltham precinct upgrade, there was a, a change to the scheme in there around the Meltham precinct. Private uh, amendment that went through. On the back of that, the city of Bayswater is actually looking at changing part of Bayswater, which used to be called Meltham, extending the size of what it used to be, calling it Meltham, renaming it Meltham. And within that is R60 and R80. Hmm, interesting. So that's where they're looking to have some density. Absolutely. I'd be really interested to see whether those uh, mid-sized developers are incentivized to put their money where their mouth is and, and build something around there because it's a quite underutilized train station, isn't it, Meltham? Meltham's a, yeah, very underutilized. And I think the, the scheme amendment that went through, a lot of that zoning around there along the railway line and Watley Crescent's and RAC3 zoning, which is pretty open-ended for commercial slash yep. residential, and then sort of you know going back from there to your R80s, uh, back to the R60s, which is on the outside of it. I mean, as you'd know, Trent, across Perth, there's been a lot of rezoning or potential rezoning coming up that is really, I think, giving people the opportunity to get in where they couldn't get in before because the zonings were quite low. Nedlands, Claremont. Yeah. I've uh, heard of that stories about, I mean, over there, which is the people are up in arms because... They well, can't. they don't want more density. They don't want to yeah. be sharing, They want their quarter-acre block. Exactly right. And look, you don't, you're not forced to subdivide just because your zoning has changed. If no. anything, it makes your house or your block more valuable. But I think that's a good thing about Bayswater is a good portion of that whole suburb, at the very least, is subdividable into two. It gives you the chance to do that. And it's not too dense, uh, but it gives you an opportunity maybe to sell off your backyard if you want to stick around and, and dive, you know, pay your mortgage down so you can stay in the suburb. There, the opportunities are getting less and less. I think a lot of the, as I mentioned, a lot of the, the blocks between sort of six sixty right through to the seven twenty six square metre blocks have been developed. They are still there. I, I wouldn't say they're all gone, but I mean, there's a fairly high percentage of them are subdivided. The eclectic nature of the way that they did the subdivisions, you've got a lot of uh, smaller lots. Your four fifties, four seventies. 500s throughout the suburb that you couldn't do anything with mm. under 17.5 or R25. Some of that's going R60. Some of them have got real laneways. So whether people are going to amalgamate, you know, one or two blocks, and that's why I allude to mums and dads or even just a young couple moving into the suburb. I mean, it doesn't help with development right now, but I think that as the suburb, the train station and the whole infrastructure with Meltham, it just it's, it's going to change and it's going to take you know, 10, 15 years at least. But you can buy yourself an R60, you know, potentially R60 block before it gets rezoned now if you can find one because they don't come up 
people are holding on to them. They're waiting. Yeah, very true. But that doesn't mean, I think once it goes through, then there'll be a flood. There'll, everyone will have one. So I think the prices will be pretty reasonable <laughs> because I think the supply will go up. Exactly right. But what that means is that hopefully it will release a bit of new product into the market and bring younger people with a bit more of a uh, consumerist lifestyle, which gives you know, assists places like King William Street for opening up some more cafes and bringing some buzz to the area. That's what the most people that want the development are talking about, the, the density increase, the you know, turn it into a bit more of a lively, living sort of, you know, living, breathing suburb. At the moment, it's like a sleepy old country town. That's what a lot of people like about it. It's not much happening. It's mm. just, just 7Ks from the city and it feels like you're in the country. Very true. Steve, last question. What's the median house price in Bayswater? I would say it's somewhere around 560 at the moment. It did peak out, I think, in the mid-600s or somewhere up around there. I think it's back at around 560 now. Steve, if you've got 560 grand in your pocket today to buy in Bayswater, what would you be buying? I'd be looking in the Meltham precinct where they're looking at doing the rezoning and I'd try and file myself a R60 or the ones that are going to be R60. It's a fairly wide area, uh, from 726 square metre blocks right down to the sort of mid-400 uh, square metre blocks with rear access. I think that'll help when you, if and when you want to do a subdivision. Uh, you can go, I think, two or three storeys with R60. Three storeys, yep. Three storeys. So yeah, I think there's some real upside there. 560, you should still be able to buy something, maybe on the more around the 500 square metre block. Yeah, so an already subdivided block in the proposed R60 zone where you've got an older sort of three by two or something like that on it. Yeah, subdivided or unsubdivided. Yeah, well. There are smaller lots in within that within that precinct that you can actually get a hold of. But yeah, something that's already been subdivided that can with a reasonably wide frontage. There's there's a There are opportunities in there. So very much a medium-term prospect, but you think that's probably the best prospect compared to just going and getting yourself a 700-square-meter block out near the commercial zone or out on the Bassendine side. Once again, that really gets back to your size of your land. If you're buying at 560 and you're buying 1,000 square meters, I think that's still a good buy even on the outskirts if you can get that around that river precinct. Yeah, cool. Steve Lay, thank you very much. Very insightful chat. Appreciate your, your comments on Bayswater. For me, it is one of those suburbs to watch over the next 10 years, just given all of the change that's going to be going on emanating out of that train station in the first place. Thanks very much for the invite, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!